Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter four. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Happy are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, because death has passed over them and God has freed them from bondage. They were covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, where did all that Lamb blood go from the Temple Mount? There was a special drainage system for animal blood at the temple, the blood channel and the drainage ditch. It was on the east side of the temple and down to the south to the Kidron Brook below. The temple's high and and it's on the east side and then south to to the brook. Most blood came from the area of the racks or hooks where the animals were hung to drain the carcass of the remaining blood. It wasn't a small amount of blood during feast time. But on Passover... There were two drains at the base of the altar at the temple, and they were intentionally plugged or stopped up by the priesthood. The lamb blood with the drains plugged got deeper and deeper and deeper as more and more and more lambs or goats had their throats slit and their blood drained. The Passover called for the barefooted priest to walk on the holy ground through the innocent lamb blood that was at least ankle deep or higher on Passover day. Now, what did walking through that blood remind the priests of? God's blood covenant with Abram. Abram prepared the sacrifice. He drained all the blood of the animals as God had prescribed him to do. But when Abraham had all the bloody carcasses split and ready, God put Abram into a deep sleep and the blood covenant would be dependent on God alone passing through the blood. This really was the first Passover, 430 years before there was ever a Passover with Moses. In Exodus 12, listen, the time that the people of Israel dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That's the day they were released. That was Passover on that very day. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. To do this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel through their generations. This was the original or the pre, the pre-Passover, the event that would foreshadow a typology really for Passover. The Passover was 430 years later to the day. On that very day, they escaped Egypt. This was the original Passover with Abram 430 years before to the day before Moses. Now, when that temple was finally built in Jerusalem, Passover was celebrated in the temple as a required Jewish feast day. Passover was the bloodiest of all God's feasts. The priests were a go-between between God and the people. The priest would walk through the blood, reminding the people of God's promise, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. The final fulfillment of God's word would be the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ as foreshadowed here with Abraham, as foreshadowed here with Moses. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, the final Passover lamb of God. Paul says to the Corinthians, for Christ, our Paschal lamb has been sacrificed. There was so much blood to dispose of after a Passover feast in Jerusalem. How did they clean up all that lamb blood for each yearly Passover? 
Well, after all the lambs had been slaughtered, the temple would need cleansing, and the priest would remove the plugs from the drain holes, leading to the shishin at the base of the altar, and gallons upon gallons upon gallons of lamb blood would descend into pits. This pit drainage system is referred to in the Hebrew writings as the shichin, pronounced shishin in the plural. And in the Mishnah, we're told that it is recorded there are two openings at the base of the altar, and into those two cavities drain the blood, poured at the base down into the shishin where they were emptied out into the Kidron Brook. The Kidron Brook is a small stream that runs in the Kidron Valley to the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem and descends southward from there toward the Dead Sea. A detail is also mentioned in the Mishnah that at the base, at the altar's base, they could enter there into the cavity, the blood pit, and they could clean it. So a water channel that fed the temple courtyard would be opened and a sudden influx of water pressure would flood the courtyard with fresh cleansing water and the lifeblood of so many lambs would be rinsed from the temple courtyard down into the depths of the Shishin where it would burst forth from the drain in a powerful gush of blood and water and run into the Kindrum Brook. This is quite a visual for all the pilgrims to pass over in Jerusalem year after year. This large amount of blood and water gushing from the eastern side of the temple. Blood and water flowing from the eastern side of the temple and down into the Kidron Brook and Valley and out to the Dead Sea. After the lambs were finally all slain in the temple courtyard, the priests removed the plugs and they opened the water channel to flood the courtyard and wash away the crimson trace of blood down the drain and it would appear to observers outside the temple that the temple was actually bleeding blood and water flowing out the eastern side of the temple of God. The temple channel and the drainage dish out the east side of the temple and down to the brook and out to the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea is absolutely the lowest place on the face of the earth. Uh, the Dead Sea Depression is in three countries, Israel, Jordan, and Syria. It's 413 meters below sea level. It's the lowest place on the face of the entire earth and that's where the blood ends up. So salty is the Dead Sea that absolutely nothing can live in it. The blood and the water flow directly into the Kidron Brook through the Kidron Valley like a drainage ditch and eventually out to the Dead Sea. Now, if you remember, Ezekiel predicted a infinitely large new temple. It's in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel has a vision. He brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and he led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east and the water was coming out on the south side. That's the blood channel the drainage ditch right there where Ezekiel's describing. Going on eastward with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And then he measured a thousand and he led me through the water and it was knee deep. And then he measured a thousand and he led me through the water and it was up to the loins. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? You're 
after year after year after year, the blood of the lambs would wash out the east of the temple and south to the Kidron. Then he led me back along the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arba. And when it enters the stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. The stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. This is an impossibility with the Dead Sea. How could that ever happen? Stagnant waters be made fresh by water flowing from an infinite temple. The blood and water flowing from the heart, it was really the center of the temple to the east and then south to the Dead Sea. Well, the same Passover fluids of blood and water released from a new temple of Jesus' body, the temple drain was unplugged and the blood and water of the final Passover lamb washed over Mary's body and he gave over his spirit. John tells us in 1 John 5, there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. Ezekiel also mentioned Mary in a mystical way or ever virgin Mary, the shut gate of the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 44, he said to me, the gate shall remain shut. It shall not be open and no one shall enter it for the Lord, the God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Scholars have seen that shut gate as the virgin Mary. She's below Jesus. The water and blood is gushing from his side. He's the new temple. Mary needed a savior. She needed a savior too. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden, and henceforth all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He's deposed into her loving arms. Mary is the first to be baptized by Jesus with the water that gushes from his side. Mary is the first to receive the blood of communion with him. Ezekiel continues in Ezekiel 47, wherever this river goes, every living creature which swarms shall live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from the Engedi to the Engelim, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Well, remember when risen Jesus is standing on the seashore, on the Sea of Tiberias, and he sees the apostles fishing. It's all over. And Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you have caught. And Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. On the banks of the river, says Ezekiel, on both sides, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for the food and for healing, the leaves healing for the nations. Water for them flows from the sanctuary of the temple. Their fruit will be food, their leaves will be healing. And that's what the Bible ends with, Revelation 22, through the middle of the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. On either side of the river will be the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit perpetually, perpetually blooming. The leaves of the tree will be for the healing of all the nations, all Abraham's children. Just as Abraham had faith before the sign of circumcision, Moses had the sign of the Passover before he was given 
the law. Now, following the Passover in Egypt, after the 430 years and the Exodus 12 Passover, Moses has over 2 million Israelites that he needs to get out of Egypt and into the promised land. No small task. What should have taken about two weeks took them 40 years. They came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness there and Israel encamped before the mountain of the Lord. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel that you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you unto myself. Now for God, that's love language. That's marital. He's the husband. He wants this bride and he wants to take her unto himself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all people for all the earth is mine. And you shall become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be my own bride. This is God's love. There are still weddings on top of Mount Sinai because this is the place where God married Israel. So the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. They need to be ready on the third day. Now God's bride must be washed blemish free. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus shall you say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Now the wedding gift that God the husband wants to give the bride is the law. This will be the gift he gives them, the Ten Commandments. And it'll be a love letter written with God's own very finger. And it'll be a gift for the bride's happiness, her joy, her beatitude. Every good husband is concerned for his bride's happiness, and so is God. And remember the praetor natural gifts they had lost. After the fall of mankind, we no longer have the gift of infused knowledge. So we don't know what we need for happiness. God's going to give them the law to show them what they need for happiness. We're ignorant about that. And so God will help his bride know how? By giving her the law, the Ten Commandments, a gift for her beatitude, a gift for the bride's own happiness. So Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the other shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now there has to be mutual consent for a wedding. There has to be mutual consent. Moses wrote down all the words of the law. He rose up early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars and the 12 tribes of Israel were all represented. He sent men of the people of Israel to offer burnt offerings. They sacrificed blood offerings, peace offerings, oxen to the Lord. Moses took half the blood. He put it into basins. Half the blood he threw against the altar and Moses took the book of the covenant. He read it again in the hearing of the people and they said, all the Lord has spoken. We will do. We will be obedient. We have heard and we will obey the Lord. Again, it was mutual consent for this marriage. Moses took the blood. He threw it upon the people and he said, behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. Now, how long did it take for the people to break that covenant? All that the Lord has said, we will do. And they repeated it. Moses, Aaron, Nabdab, Abihu, 70 of the elders go up. They saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven 
for clearness. And God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. They were able to eat and drink with God Almighty, Scripture tells us, Exodus 24, 11. Then Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. What a glorious scene it must have been. They saw it. They saw it. They heard it. And while Moses is up there, he gets a lot of information from God. Offering, how to do offerings for the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of the bread of the presence, the lampstand, the tabernacle, the framework, the curtains, the altar of burnt offerings, the court and its hangings, the oil for the lamp. Moses is still up there. What's taking so long? God's telling him more about the vestments of the priesthood, the ephod, the breastplate, the other priestly vestments, the ordination of priests, the daily offerings. They're waiting and waiting and waiting, and God still has more. Moses, let me tell you about the altar of incense, the half shekel for the sanctuary, the bronze basin, the anointing oil, the incense. Let me tell you about these guys I want to craft all this, Bezalel and Olahab. Let me tell you about the Sabbath law. Oh, and yes, I've made these two tables of the covenant for you with my own hand to give the people the wedding gift. God gave to Moses when he had ended speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tables of stone written with the very finger of God. What a wedding gift Moses had to take down the mountain after the 40 days was over to give to the people for their own happiness, the gift of the 10 commandments written by the very finger of God, their husband. What did the bride do with this amazing gift? How long did it take the bride to break God's love letter? Well, they couldn't even wait the 40 days. They got anxious. Moses was delayed coming from the mountain. They gather around Aaron, his brother, and they say, make us gods. Go, go before us. We don't know if this guy Moses is ever coming back. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And some translations say they rose up to dance or to have orgy. And the Lord God said to Moses, I have seen these people. Behold, they are a stiff-necked people. And therefore, let me alone. My wrath may burn hot against them, and I might just consume them. But you, Moses, I will make you a great nation. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the sinful people. He says to the Lord, turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against the people. God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thy own self. And he's referring to that covenant. God had made a blood covenant by his own self with Abraham. The blood was dependent on God alone walking through. And he intercedes again. Remember, Abram, Isaac, Israel, thy servants, you did swear by your own self. You did say, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, Abram, and all the land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. How did God react when Moses called him out on his very word, on his very promise to Abram? The Lord God repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people. That's how important Moses' intercessory prayer was. Moses begged God and God Almighty changed his mind. He relented. Didn't you say to Father Abram that you would multiply his descendants and he believed by faith and you reckoned it to him as righteousness? Now, Moses... God relented, but Moses was angry. Moses comes down the mountain with his anger burning hot. He threw the tables of the law that God had written with his own finger. He took that calf that they had made and he burned it in fire. He ground it to powder. He scattered it on water and he made the people drink it. 
Moses stood at the gate of the camp and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to Moses. Now, I want to remind you of something. Moses is a Levite. So is Aaron, his brother, and Miriam. The house of Levi is his father, and the house of Levi is his mother. Moses, in his own hot anger, calls forward a priesthood. He says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every man put his sword on his side and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. There fell 3,000 people that day, 3,000 men. And Moses said, today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son or his brother, that he may bestow a blessing on you this day. So I want to tell you, the sons of Levi were the ones ordained for the priesthood. The sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses, and there fell that day 3,000 men. Now, who's Levi? Remember from our Genesis study, Levi is a son of Leah and Jacob, the third son, in fact. And they had a daughter also named Dinah. And you might remember in Genesis 34, when Dinah went out to visit the women of the land and Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hittite, Hivite, the prince of the land saw her, seized her, he lay with her and he humbled her. Do you remember that? And Dinah's brothers avenged their sister's rape and they made the whole town to be circumcised. And on the third day, while they were still sore, two of the sons of Jacob, who? Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came into the city of unawares and killed all the males. And on Jacob's deathbed, you'll remember, in Genesis chapter 49, Simeon and Levi are brothers of weapons of violence, are their swords. This is what Jacob says, O oh, my soul, Come not into their counsel. Oh, my spirit, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they slay men. And in their wantonness, they hamstring oxen. Cursed is their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. That was the blessing for Levi on Jacob's deathbed. Now it's the sons of Levi, of whom Moses is one, get ordained for a priesthood. It's called the Levitical priesthood, and they'll get to deal with a lot of blood their entire life, from generation to generation to generation. 3,000 killed by the old priesthood, the order of Levi, by Moses. 3,000 will be born again at Pentecost by a new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek from Genesis 14 by Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. This will be the new covenant priesthood of Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek. And 3,000 will be born again. 3,000 will be baptized on the first day. If you go to Hebrews 7, you'll see a comparison between these two priesthoods, the old and the new. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people receive the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. That would be Judah. Hint, hint. For it is evident that our Lord has descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not according to the legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Who had an indestructible life? Who rose from death itself into eternal life? Jesus Christ, tribe Judah. It is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the old Levitical priesthood was a go-between, a go-between sinful people, priests, and God. The priest is the one who will atone for the individual sins and the sins of the people of Israel with animal blood. The Levitical priest would offer the animal blood on behalf of the sinful people to God. They were an intermediary, a go-between. The animal blood, instead of your own human blood, would be accepted by God as a sacrifice, as an atonement for your sin. Until Jesus, the new priest of a new priesthood, came as the perfect blood expiation for all. The new priesthood is a priesthood of Jesus Christ the final lamb of God. And it's still an active priesthood. It must be. Sinful people atone the, the forgiveness. There's one high priest who can intercede, but there's a priest sitting in person of Christ in the order of Melchizedek that acts as an go-between, an intermediary to the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. You are not justified by your circumcision. You are not justified by the law of Moses. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption, which is Christ Jesus. God put forward Jesus as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus came as the perfect blood expiation. And Jesus asks us to participate in his blood by drinking it. The cup of blessing that we bless, said Paul to the Corinthians, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? No other blood in the entire Bible were people ever, ever allowed to drink. Leviticus 17, the lifeblood, the life of the creature is in the blood. You cannot, it's an abomination to drink blood. No other people in the entire Bible were allowed to drink blood. But Jesus commanded us to drink his perfect sacrificial blood and to become part of his own lifeblood coursing through our own veins. St. Augustine told the people, receive what you are and be what you receive. Receive what you are, the blood of Christ, and be what you receive. Be the life of Jesus Christ to others. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, this man speaks harshly. Who can listen to these words? But Peter said, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. This is the cup of the new covenant in Christ's precious blood poured out for you to take freely and to drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6 verse 54. We believe that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we say in our Eucharistic prayer all together, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death until you come again. He's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The judgment of the righteous to the resurrection of life and the judgment of the wicked to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for your precious blood and the gift that it is. We thank you for the law, how it helped us form our conscience and know right from wrong. But we're saved not by the law, 
but by your precious blood that you've asked us to participate in and to drink. May that blood, that lifeblood course through our veins and help us bring the living Jesus Christ to all. Amen. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter four, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.